Hey gang, welcome back. This episode sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals, nature's most complete trace mineral salt and the one I feed to my herd. Support for this episode also provided by our generous patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. This week, my good friend from Lusk, Wyoming, Mr. Sage Askin, joins me from his field office via Zoom for a long overdue conversation about how to get started in ranching with nothing but a dream. Sage shares his tips and tricks about how to get on the same page with ownership about long-term land management goals. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mr. Askin, welcome back to Ranching Reboot. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How about you, Brian? Oh, it's just another day in paradise. You haven't, uh, you don't have a spare rain shower you could loan me, do you? <laughs> no, we're a little short on those ourselves, but uh, I'll sure pray one comes your way and maybe, maybe, maybe starts out here and heads down there. <laughs> well, that'd be awesome. That doesn't nice. happen very often. <laughs> no. Well, when it does, it's usually something like, you know, a horrible snow or ice storm and you can keep all those. All right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, since, since we did this, uh, last time I was at back in January, I think episode 40 ish something, maybe, um, why don't you, uh, I picked up a few new listeners and, um, you're, you're back by listener request. So who are you guy? <laughs> well, thank you. I'm deeply honored to join you again, Brian. I had such a good time down there that day and we had a great day running around your ranch. Love what I saw there. Um, we yeah, need to so do it again. Thinking, we will do it again for sure. For sure. I'll come when you get some rain. I want to see it when it's really, really green. <laughs> I'd like to see it really, really green again. So uh, for, for all the new listeners of the podcast, why don't you to just give us the quick squirt of, of who you are and where you're at. Perfect. So my name is Sage Askin and I ranch with my wife, Faith, um, and our three little kids, Alpharetta, Clancy, and Gus. And we are located in extreme East Central Wyoming. And we have multiple units. Um, I guess, I guess probably what most people are interested in is that we've been super blessed with the opportunity to start up from scratch. I just had a dream of starting a ranch and uh, we operate primarily on leased land and we operate now at a fairly decent scale and we are investing in land and uh, we have livestock investment and we're just having a lot of fun making uh making a living and most of what i have to talk about is probably my mistakes <laughs> but uh but we're 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 just loving the lifestyle um and what else uh specifics we we operate three different units that are all 
kind of work together, but but they all work on their own too. We all work as a team for the HR and the personnel, but we don't help each other, you know, very often back and forth. They kind of work on their own labor-wise. And uh, we're trying to get that all functional and that should give us some ecological diversity and some ability to withstand some of these drought events like you and I have been talking about. And also uh, we're just trying to pioneer kind of a new model of ranching is the way I look at it, Brian. And I, I look at it as, you know, uh, what, what our measure of success would be is, is uh, we, we've come up with a kind of a new mission this year, and it's making the family ranch viable. And we're really excited about that. And, and we're doing that by trying to make our family ranch viable. And what I mean by viable, because that, that, that requires a definition, is we're able to invest in land and be happy to do that with after-tax dollars profit and pay ourselves a sustainable wage and pay fair market value lease for everything that we operate on and make an economic profit while doing so. And, and that is the ranching for profit definition of that. Um, oh, you got to hit your dinger. Got the dinger. <laughs> we're, we're trying to, we're trying to do that. So anyway, you can take it from there, Brian, and go where you want. So. Yeah. Well, you surprised me. I wasn't ready for that uh, RFP name drop, but we got her in there. Got to, got to get a few of those got to get a few of those in haven't had too many of those in lately um yeah so you gave me a lot of good rabbits to trace um you know a lot of a lot of people have been asking some of these questions um you know we've, we've talked about drought planning and you're in wyoming and you know part of good drought planning is having the ability to flex your stocking rate paying attention to the weather situation you know the the forecast and the long-term climate prediction models and seeing what's coming down the line. If things say it's going to be dry, 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 maybe you need to get rid of some of your own units so you have some, so you have some forage for what you keep to eat. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, are you keeping any, and I'm kind of also interested in if you're keeping any cows over the winter and how you're planning on keeping them fed and supplemented. Sure. Yes, that's a great question. So we lease a lot more land than we need for our own livestock. And I think that that's a good rule of thumb. I mean, so. And, have and, more and, land base than you have animals to eat. For sure. Like, because that's when you back yourself in the corner and it's the 10th of December on the last sale of the year. And you're like, I've got to sell these. And you just take what you can get. Right. And then you yeah. take that hit. That's how you go broke is backing yourself in a corner financially and being at the whim of the market, which we can't control. The other thing we can't control. So back to the drought planning. Um, we do exactly like you said, we, we spend a lot of time. I don't put a lot of faith in long-term weather forecasting. I mean, I'd love to find one that seems accurate and, and they're not there. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you agree with that or not, but they just, you know, it's they hard can to give disagree. you, yeah. I mean, I, I spend a ton of time thinking about what happens this week because those seem pretty good now and certainly better than they were five years ago, 10 years ago. We've had our, you know, we've been really saved by a good meteorologist up here. His name is Don Day, and he gives a great podcast. We watch it, and he will call a storm that um, he balances like three different models, you know, the North American, the Canadian, and the, the is it the European or whatever? And, yeah. and that's different. A lot of our weather stuff here in the U.S., like AccuWeather and whatever, they just go off the American model, and, and they stink, to be honest. It isn't always right. And he'll often say, you know, here's the, and then he has lots of experience, so he brings a lot of analog stuff in with it. And, and that helps us avoid storm events. However, in long-term drought forecasting, um, 
we're we're thinking about a few things right now. One is like I doubt that we're going to have a quadruple dip La Nina, right? It's probable I, that we're not. Based I think, off I think we're going to have a triple though. Yeah, it's been a triple. It's been a triple La Nina, and there's only been three or four of those. You know, we're probably not going to have next summer. Should go at least in so neutral, right, or something like that. And is, I, I, I don't. I don't know. Is that what Day's talking about? I haven't listened to him lately. That, that's what Don Day's talking about is saying, like, it looks like probability of going neutral. So back to what we use it in our deal is, like, just a general idea. So I, I can't stock up till the grass grows. I can't, I can't grow grass until it rains. So I can't really do much. So we have, uh, we try to match. We're pretty good at forecasting what our winter stockpile is going to be in dormancy because we can go measure that. It's pretty real time. We don't have when, a lot of oxidation loss and things in the wintertime. So. When do you go measure your winter stockpile? Yeah, here right at the first of like November is pretty good. Brian, okay. we've reached. And and then we're generally going to air in our favor. Like if we get any growth, it might be in like the draws and stuff. Sometimes it does yeah, happen. The little cool yeah. season grass that's down in the low draws or where, it, you know, yeah, down, right. down by water. I, I get a lot of that through the wintertime if I get moisture. If you get moisture and we do too, way more than you're told in college, you know, but, but I, I feel like, you know, if we measure it then and we say, this is what we've got, we're not going to bank on anymore. And we're probably not going to have a fire that burns any of it up where we're at. And, you know, I know that that's a risk where you're at. Um, so, so, so that is pretty good. And we just Question came up this that. morning. What are you going to yeah. do if we get a fire that burns up the hay pile? Oh man. Take them to town. Yeah. Like, that, it might that's... be worth insuring the hay, you know? that's that's oh that's a good that point regard. yeah might well, be a good risk management i'm looking at buying crappy alfalfa for way too expensive you might be able to insure it for more i don't know <laughs> that's that's not a terrible idea and uh, you know I'm, I'm not buying i'm not buying forage i'm just buying supplement yep yep oh. yep well but anyway yeah that's that's uh so i always go an extra month too so we tend to think of green grass may one and I, I and we've every year where we live at Lusk, we've been able to have green grass to graze on May one. Um, but I will tell you, March and April are the most difficult times of the year on a cow that I can imagine. I mean, there'll be little bits of grass coming up. Now, sheep—it's another reason to have sheep. They do really well that time of year. We're not worried, so we'll stop supplementing the sheep in mid-March, almost irregardless, other than in storm events. But the cattle often they can't just get quantity enough and they'll actually expend more energy chasing green grass. And, and if they're like a short-term cow or something that could be compromised in any manner, that's when I worry about cows. So we actually will, will kind of skimp on the early part of winter, especially if we're open. We'll be ready to supplement during storm events or right before, so we're not out in the storm event. And then going on in the wintertime, we put an extra month's worth of feed in and budget clear to the 1st of June right uh, you know on this november 1st feed budget and that's what we say we're going to winter anything that we come up so i have a pretty good idea right now i'm talking to you on october 11th i have a pretty good idea where we're at um and uh and and i'll solidify that you know and we'll go ahead and move like whether we have to get extra winter feed or something or winter forage or something i try very hard to move the cows to winter forage if we need to last year we did some corn stalks to help augment keeping our cow calf deal together um and, and that's not something I try to do, but it's something we do if we think we're short, you know, so. You know. I, okay, the question I really want you to answer is how much forage hay do you go through in a year? Like how many days a year are you hauling, hauling a ration to your cows versus just a supplement? 
yes, Brian, for the last five years, we have not, unless it's like, a, so on the range, cows, that's what you're talking, right? I mean, right. ranching, ranching, our production livestock. We're way under half a ton of cow for the whole winter of hay used. So, so we just don't, we just don't do it. So you're feeding, if you're a half a ton, that's a thousand pounds for a cow, divide that out by 30 pounds a day. So you're, you're not even feeding 30, 40 days. That's right, Brian. We're doing a lot of, I think similar to what you've done, we're doing a lot of surge feeding where we might feed twice a week, or we might, we do use some cube sometimes for supplement, but it's even that is pretty low consumption. I'd have to do the math, but um, like we might be feeding a pound at the most of the last five years, we've been feeding a pound per day and we might start that after the first of January. And we're only doing it, you know, once or twice a week. And then we're doing that until, unless we got snowed up and then we might feed, you know, eight pounds of hay, you know, and again, we're only doing that once or twice a week. We're doing a big surge feed, you know, with hay, especially we've had pretty good luck doing twice a week. And we've had a little bit of luck going, you know, once every other, uh, I'm sorry, once a week. Um, or doing like a huge gangbusters feed, like doubling up once, you know, every other week type of deal. And then doing, cubes, would those be you know, like in front of weather events or right, right. You know, when you get into the regular weather events or semi-regular in late, late December, January, February, we'll do a lot of that where we're surging them enough with hay for weather events. And then we're, we're doing cubes when it's open and that works great. You know, it seems to work great. But total winter feed costs are less than $100, and I try to keep it there, even in those these high input times. And that really helps us stay profitable. It really scares me seeing guys that are saying they're out of grass already. And I, I've been talking about this on social media now for like six weeks. Like six right. weeks ago, it was – so you already gave it away. I mean, recording October 11th, it was uh, the 1st of September. I saw some neighbors feeding hay. Yeah. Like, and I'm in Southern Kansas. Like if you're feeding hay in Southern Kansas first September, you got a problem. And, you know, even people farther South down into Oklahoma, Southeast, you know, Southeast Oklahoma, Northern Texas, I'm getting reports of guys already feeding hay and been feeding hay for a month, month and a half. Like that's just absolutely insane. Um, see, it was last week. Um, one of my one of the folks on my Discord server said that they were bailing up corn stalks in central Kansas and western Kansas feedlot had offered them $150 a ton for bailed corn stalks picked up. Mm. Like they were gonna That's come. Crazy. Yeah. So so that goes into another thing, and I don't know if you want to talk about it, but where my mind goes is the market implications. A lot of people are betting on a really bullish cattle cycle right now. And I just think that the inputs are going to take all the starch out of that. You know, I do want to talk about that. I, I really do want to talk about the market implications of high feed costs. Um, but where I'd like to focus on first yep. is, you know, since you're a guy that has done what I think a lot of my listeners want to do, bootstrap up from nothing. Let's, uh, let's spend a little bit of time talking about talking about that sure um so you said that i think one of the earliest times that i heard your name was was at that school that shall not be named or maybe at a workshop and 
your mention is, you know, starting on leased land with leased equipment and leased cattle. So yeah. I guess that could be a good, um, if that's a good starting point for you, how does say, um, well, I'll look at my demographics and analytics page. I got a lot of listeners in Houston. So let's just say somebody's in a filing cabinet in Houston in an office job that they hate and they want to be the next Sage Askin CEO of Askin Global Land and Livestock. Sure. What would be step one? Well, the key to it is that it is just a margin business and you do not need a lot of operating capital if, you're, if you can get out of your head. So step one is a psychological change of saying, I don't need to own the cow and I don't need to own the land. And if you can break, those are huge paradigms, as you know, Brian, if you can break those paradigms, I would say the sky is the limit. There's never been more opportunity than right now. Um, the, the, the third thing is distinctly getting that first piece of land. Um, I would look at for, you know, in an urban environment or more urban than where I'm at, just unused land, vacant land, you know, and I know it exists in tremendous volume. Further east in the United States you go, it exists more and more. I mean, just find something that that you can add value to with your livestock. And, and that's, that's where it really starts to work. But in the West, I would say it's more competitive because we are valuing land for grazing value. It's something we see. So you've got to more explore the underused, so the underserved land, the stuff that hasn't had water developed, the stuff that... Uh, you know, the CRP is a huge thing that I think a person could make a sustainable grazing business on today as we speak, because they're encouraging you now uh, uh, more and more to use that every third year. They understand like, wow, this sucks if we don't use it every now and then. And they're right, you know, and so so that's a huge somebody should start a grazing business that puts together thousands of acres of CRP and and uh, does that like right away. <laughs> I think that's a huge, you know, they can graze it every third year. They could just they could just make arrangements with those landlords and pay a fair market rental rate and and things would work. So tying up the land is key, and and I think it doesn't have to be at huge scale. Um, once you've broken the paradigm of not having to buy the cows, and you just focus on the land, I think it's pretty easy. I don't think it's that hard to come up with a piece of property, and 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 then the next thing is what do you run on that piece of property, and that is strictly a margin thing. And I think you can, you know, your costs into the property. Um, and if you don't know those costs, you can ascertain that off of forage production. And if the, and you can go to the NRCS and come up with the production per acre on that. That's a reasonable assessment. You can compare and cross-reference that with um, what is the price. I'm sorry, what has been like past use, historical use or nearby use. I think those are good things to cross-reference. Never plan on like a grazing like year one out of the gate, I'm going to get double just because I'm going to do management intensive grazing. I think that'd be a poor practice and nobody would tell you to do that. Don't plan on growing the grass until you've grown the grass, you know? And, and I then, think that's a fallacy that people are like, Oh, look, those regenerative guys. They just say, if you just move your cows four times a day, you'll have double the grass. Right. Well, that's a gross oversimplification of a lot of shit that I've said. Yep. Is, is there grains of truth in there? 100% does it take time? Yes. And that's what they're not mentioning is it's not an overnight change. And, totally. and I think similarly, and maybe this is worth talking about um, as a rabbit trail of chase is overgrazing and drought. Like 
the more a pasture gets overgrazed and continuously overgrazed in a dry climate, the farther it's going to degrade and the longer it's going to take to, to, to restore that. Right. Totally. Totally. Yep. And, yep. you know, the reason for that is so you know, in the dormant season, I'm not afraid to graze short because when you graze it short during the growing season, those plants are going to go, Oh crap, I got to throw up some solar panels. So they're going to sacrifice root mass. Okay. That root mass is going to die back to give the plant energy to put up solar panel because that's an act of desperation. Like, Hey, I got to throw up another solar panel because they're all gone. I got to catch some energy and store some sugar in my root. So maybe I can put up a stem and seed head and you know, a set stock pasture that gets, you know, continuously grazed as soon as that solar panel gets up there, somebody's going to come by and clip it off. And what's the plant do? The plant does the only thing that it can do according to its programming and its genetic code. It sacrifices more root mass to put up another solar panel. You sacrifice enough of that root mass long enough, you know, you're, when your, your roots are dying back, your, your fungal networks get stressed, your bacterial, your bacteria get stressed. You know, your, your, your soil microbiome isn't doing its job because it's all stressed and it's not stressed because of lack of water. It's stressed because it's sacrificing everything it has to try to put biomass back above ground. Yeah. And then when it does rain, if you've, if you overgrazed it too bad and all your roots have died, then when it does rain, there's, there's no moisture infiltration. There's no life in the soil to help soak that moisture down. Right. And it all runs off and goes down the Creek. Yep. And it, it, it's like, I mean, I can see it in my head, how everything may have happened, you know, in West Texas and New Mexico and Arizona. And well, even here and, you know, into, uh, over in Eastern Colorado. Now we just overgrazed shit out of it for five or 10 years and a couple bad droughts and it just never had enough management to recover. Yep. Yeah. And I see it all over, you know, you see the preponderance of those, uh, more rhizomatous grasses there or, or the, the real sod bound grasses that are everywhere. That's not what was there and that's what's there now, you know, and that's because of that. And I think it's been longer than five or 10 years. I think it's been sporadic good management over 150 years and then most of the time 90 percent has been turn them out you know and 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 i think you can get away with it in people's lifespans because some of the changes happen slowly the model right and you can graze at you can kick them out all summer at like half of the stocking rate at a very low stock rate, I see this a lot on ranch land where we're at, and that's okay under their economic model because it got paid for under the last economic cycle. It's not being paid for now. In fact, it's being it's being used to subsidize a lifestyle now on so many ranches, and and because of that, um, they can kick out and do that, and that land continues to go. But it's just a slow, gradual degradation that happens over the thirty and forty year span, where. 30 and 40 years go by right now, people, almost everybody, I would say as a rule, if you talk to them about how many cows did grandpa run, they might say double, they might say a third more, they might say, and, and, but th there's a lack of understanding of how they got there, you know, 
And it isn't all met just by cow size. If you really do the math, it had to do with management in some, in some regard, but really it was rangeland health, you know, and we're dealing with degraded rangelands, you know, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. And so, yeah, in, in drought management, back to the original question, I think you have to leave adequate residual behind. And like you say, I don't mind grazing short in the wintertime either in dormancy. Um, in fact, I think that that stimulates growth. We have messed up, Brian. There's been times when we've grazed in the, in the grazing season. You know, we've done the Ian Mitchell Innes. We really love that style of top third grazing. And I have messed it up where I've went and I didn't get any precip on it. And it doesn't recover in that growing season. And you just have to lengthen your recovery season and say, okay, not going back. So we've got some pastures right now, some paddocks. They're very small paddocks. That's the other benefit. When you do that, if you're doing it on a paddock system, you're doing it on 0.5% of the whole ranch. And you're like, okay, I did mess that up. That's my bad. But but I'm I'm dang sure going to make sure that recovers before I come back, you know. And The smaller and, your paddocks are, the less you have yep. to worry about screwing up because it's a lot easier to screw up that's not a lot easier to screw up. It's um, it's less taxing to screw up one acre out of 500 than it is to screw up 250 out of that 500 with a management practice. And that's, I, I really hope that, that folks would understand that, you know, you don't have to take your whole ranch or your whole farm and do regenerative and soil health stuff on it, right? Right. Just start somewhere. I mean, Just start. Yeah. So you got a 40 that's back there behind the tree row that nobody from the highway can see. Go do something weird back there. You got a back pasture that's a little bit inaccessible that you can't really use any other way. Well, or, you know, that's, that's kind of isolated by roads. Well, figure out how to use it. Do something. Try something, you know, because if we just, if, if everybody keeps doing what they've been doing the last 30, 40 years in this business, like train wreck doesn't even describe it. Uh, I think we're headed there. And again, we're not going to touch that until you want to, but, 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 uh, <laughs> we'll do that the, in the last half of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I mean, I mean, no, that's just it. I, I think you've got to chase this stuff. It is in the arid West, West of the hundredth meridian. It is, you are going to have to do a leap of faith. If you're going to go into grazing management and say like, cause you're not going to get instant gratification. East of the 100th Meridian, you can get instant gratification in some seasons, you know. You can graze it in May, and by July, you're like, wow, this is so good, you know. It feels good. And 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 I don't think you can get that west of there, but, it, but it's hard for me to take somebody work. seriously that's in a 60-inch rainfall environment that says, we haven't had rain in five days, or we haven't had rain in 12 days. We're in a drought. Like, right. It's really hard for me to take you serious right now. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard, but it's legitimate too. You know, those guys, when they turn into that, it's, it's possibly more devastating. I mean, their plants aren't acclimated. They're, they're just not used to it. So when it happens, it really happens, you know? And so, uh, oh yeah. And, but, I, and I get yeah. that. I don't want to take anything away from them. It's just, right. It's hard for me to take you seriously when you get 60 <laughs> inches of rain and it hasn't rained in two weeks and you're telling me you're in a drought and I'm like looking at 32% of my of what would be normal for the last rolling 12 months like right okay yeah you probably had more rain last month than i've had in a year right right no that's just it that's just it yeah and so a lot of this stuff what i have noticed brian we're coming in we're through the third summer of drought pretty severe drought that happened after three or four really good years you know to be honest and we did a lot of soil building in those three or four good years 
on one ranch specifically that we uh we had done some really good practices we broke it out into paddocks to have about 40 paddocks there and that ranch in this drought we are destocked maybe to 55 percent of what we consider to be our carrying capacity on the other ranch land that we got like in 2020 as we were entering the drought the ranch land up there we only had to destock 15 to 20 percent and we have in every year of this drought actually had additional forage including this year where we said hey we can do something else with that if we want to and and that is the benefits of this regenerative ag it comes later and and we've built that and it sustained itself through this drought and i feel like that particular ranch is going to bounce back extremely quickly when we get into precip and so we saw it this year we managed land two miles away from that and the the and they suffered the same drought the same heat index days and we would it did feel like we got a little more rain up there but the numbers don't back it up we didn't get more rain there it just made better use of the water that we did get <laughs> right and 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 in these drought stress you know you get just like we were talking before the show about maybe 1500s but under good management that can go a long ways you know it makes use of hopefully 70 percent of that gets used in some manner or all of it if you're if you're doing well yeah so hypothetically an overgrazed pasture that's you know the grass is less than an inch tall which is you know probably a lot of ground between where i'm sitting and where you're sitting i'd say that's probably 95 percent of the land between us right now is less than an inch tall and or it's farm ground but that doesn't really count sure and so 1500s of rain is what let's just let's just talk that it's 1500s of rain or or real heavy dew when i've got knee-high stockpile and knee-high grass and forage still in the pasture that i move out of you know all that moisture gets a chance to get down there to ground level and it's shaded from the sun so the sun comes out today it's 80 degrees and it's 12 percent humidity with 20 mile an hour wind is am i going to lose that moisture at, at ground level at soil level because of my because of the my the biomass that i left on top of the soil am i going to lose that faster or slower than the neighbor whose grass is an inch tall yeah much slower i mean their whole deal on 1500s is going to be evaporation and gone you know volatilization immediately they need they need that's when you run into country that needs like a a two inch precip event to even to even start to turn around and it'll come uh, a lot of a lot of this country it comes in the winter time and you eventually get a big snow on it and it turns around but i i i, I agree completely brian this is this is the future and i would go so far as to say that economically in 30 years this will be this will be parity everybody will be trying to chase their tail doing some some sort of management intensive grazing and i think it's caused by land values i i think you can't afford not to you've you've got to do better with what you have <laughs> you think it'll be 30 years it might be shorter yeah but i, I, I in ag, I everything happens in, I, in ag everything happens by generations and i and i know that we're exiting a generation right now but but I still think there's a lot of hangers on. I think it'll be a lot longer time frame than it than it should be. So. Huh, I hope you're I hope you're wrong. Me too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we do have an entire generation looking to get out right now. Um, and maybe that's more true in some areas than others. But you know, like I, it, 
we've talked about it before on the podcast. I, I can't remember if it was you or not, but you know, average age. I've been doing this since 2006. Yeah. And since then, average age has done nothing but go up. Like, right. You know, so 16 years, how far has it gone up? I think it's gone up by six or eight years. So it's like half the time that I've been here, we haven't had the turnover rate that we need. And it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. You know, we, we talked about grazing value versus land price and, you know, west of the hundredth meridian or, you know, I-35 for lack of something better. Um, you know, things are really different. I'm at 98 West, so I'm not that far from hundred. Um, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, I'd, I'd probably rather be on the other side of it because it's a lot more consistent rainfall, you know, larger, you know, consistently larger population density, better access to markets. And um, so it, I watched a YouTube video about this, and I think I've said this before, but 80% of the population of America either lives on the Pacific coast or east of the 100th meridian. 80%. So there's only 20% of us out here that live in the that live in like the middle or western half of the country excluding the pacific coast 20 yep. percent of us and you take out like denver phoenix vegas salt lake and albuquerque and we're not far away from single digits being in that whole area and that's pretty wild mm-hmm. so and and land price gets really weird on the east side of that line yeah you know because it rains a lot they grow crops especially where they have soil and you know you, you were saying grazing grazing value and land price and here in my area land price has been disconnected from grazing value for at least 15 years like the sure. you can't the, i haven't been able to pencil a scenario in 15 years with land prices the way they are that it makes sense to go try to buy a ranch with cows. Like I, I, that doesn't pencil here. Does it, but would that still pencil there or have you even tried? No. Oh yeah. I've, I've tried. Of course that's, I live and breathe that it feels like, and I try it all the time. Pretty much everything that's ever come up for sale. I've, I've at least glanced at <laughs> in 15 years and none of it. So, so what would be the old rule of thumb or I'm not going to say the word, but the rule of thumb that you and I have been taught was three to four times the value of a cow would be a good little deal per AU on a, on a, on a ranch. So if it's a, if it's a 300 cow ranch and the cow's worth 1500 bucks, it'd be 1.8 million, maybe that you could pay for that ranch. Well, go and try to find a 300 cow ranch for 1.8 million. They're not out there. I mean, now they might be out there. You can make it that like you and I can make it that through management maybe what was a hundred cow ranch it might become that but not without significant capital investment and it might have been a hundred cow ranch when grandpa had it but now it's a 50 cow ranch because it's full of trees and it's been overgrazed and the price tag is thirty five hundred dollars an acre because it's being marketed as a recreational property for deer hunting versus agricultural value so somebody will come in and buy that land that's already degraded. Production value is is very low. Pay way more than production value from the livestock ranch that you or I would be running literally next door. They'll overpay for it, yep. 
never take care of their trees, never take care of their grass, never take care of fences. I mean, obviously, this is worst case scenario. They're not all that bad. <laughs> yep. yep. I hope. Um, not take care of their trees, allow their trees to spread, and um, just generally not be a great neighbor and brag about the, you know, brag about the deer that they're not shooting or brag about the deer they're seeing and, you know, whatever. To them, it's a game. It's an investment. You know, they, right. it doesn't matter to them that, you know, they're paying twice what what any of us could afford for the same piece of property and they're not making money on it. And they just look at it. It's like, well, that it's 160 acres. Why do I care about that $2,500 tax bill? Well, it might not be a big exactly. deal to you fella, but when you paid that, when you overpaid for that parcel of land, you drove my taxes up on my big parcel because I'm trying to make a living here. Sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and, uh, and that's just the difference in value. They have, they have a value. And like you were starting to say, you know, the, the productive value hasn't been valued on rangeland in the West for 15 years or so. And I wonder if some of that might not be about to change, but, but we can hold that thought. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So let's circle back. You talked about, you know, going to NRCS and getting the USDA production estimates. Yep. And so let's talk about that. Let's, let's, and without throwing around like specific numbers. So how grounded in reality have you found uh, those USDA production estimates versus the reality when you take over a property that has been managed not as well as you're managing it for sure? broad strokes? I felt them to be the best starting point that I can do, but I always cross-reference it with past use, which is a reality check. So, so I do two parallel scenarios on a spreadsheet and I do to come up with a stocking rate. And, and I actually do, uh, I actually kind of do three. So I'm going to talk about all three and I'll throw them at you. So the first thing I do is I try to use the NRCS, but all I try to get is based off soil types. They have three different vegetative productivities that will come up on a web soil survey. One is a poor year, basically. One is a moderate or average. That is the average. And that's, that's a good average. And then the other is the high productive year, you know, and that's going to be out, outliers on both the poor and the high. That's what that's picking up is big outliers. And those are, that tells you something that if those are pretty close to the same numbers, then that ranch actually has pretty variable precipitation is what that tells me. And that's actually a pretty good ranch. Like I start to look at that. And if those numbers aren't very far apart, all I, all I'm looking at is not so much at the number. It's this is a good ranch. This thing doesn't move a lot in forage production. It's going to be pretty easy for me to depend on. If those are wildly different, and I see them all the time, there might be three times the value of the high value to the low value. I think to myself, I'm going to be challenged to match the stocking rate to the available carrying capacity on any given year on this ranch. Doesn't mean we won't look at it, but it's just something to file away. So I, I do one based off pounds of forage produced, and that's okay. it. And, and I'll, run, I'll run all three of those scenarios on that one just to get the range, and I just leave it as a range. The second one I do is what did grandpa do? What does dad do? And what do you do? You know, and, and on a lot of ranches we look at, they'll say, oh yeah, we're running 250 cows. And I try to tease that information out, what it did do, what they, and most people have a rule of thumb. Most ranchers have something and they might say, yeah, it takes 30 acres to run a cow. 
They might, and the same token, you go to a different part of the world, they might say four acres to run a cow, two acres to run a cow. We like that, right? Like we right. like rules. And so, so that's a good number. Like go ahead and run that as a parallel analysis. That doesn't mean it's gospel. But or as a starting point. To, yeah. Yeah. As a starting point, both of these are just starting points. And, and you'll find they'll start honing in on stuff. Usually the NRCS data will be more optimistic that I would argue, Brian, that that doesn't make it bad data. That means that it is working off soil like the, the NRCS hasn't had money for soil samples for 30 years for new samples, like other than on cropland and things. And so a lot of that data is good. That is the capacity and the productive capability of that land. Then it's been mismanaged for another generation. So, so it can do that. It sure isn't doing that today. And we've found that a lot of that will wake up in two or three years of decent, you know, average or above average precipitation. It can change there really quick and meet that. But, but I agree with you that I don't, I don't see that. But anyway, to finish the assessment, I, I do that. And then I like to do the neighbor assessment a little bit, if you can tease that out. I don't always say that neighbors is gospel truth. But there's some good things, as you and, I, you and I know about looking in, it's always easier to look over the fence and see some things. There's going to be a few things there that are really positive. So if I can put it's those It's always easier down. to tell somebody else what your neighbor's doing wrong yep. versus what you are doing wrong, because I'm not doing anything wrong. Oh, my, exactly. my, my stuff's great. Exactly. But that neighbor over exactly. there, man, if he, if, man, if. Oh, those cows are too big. Or, you know, if he just put them all in one herd. Yep. Yeah. And in the West, the other metric you have to put against it, if somebody says that they're wintering, or I think this is true all across the nation, actually, sadly. Um, but the, then you have to pinpoint their stocking rate. They're like, oh, yeah, we're running 300 cows. You have to pinpoint the number of cow days they're being fed, you know, right. full feed. And, and most people are grazing for about, six to nine months and then the rest of the time they're feeding their cows that's probably the average i would say in stuff that we look at um in the west that's okay you just have to make sure that becomes a math problem you just change it to correlate and then say okay well really if you were grazing out we would be grazing 200 cows not 300 and oh yeah probably never done that so i don't really know you know and that that that's the rule rather than the exception I think. oh well we can't we can't scale back to 200 cows from 300 so we wouldn't have to feed all winter because we wouldn't make any money doing that. Like, it doesn't seem like <laughs> right. you're going to make a whole lot of money putting $5 a hay a day at a cow right now. Oh my gosh. No, no, sir. Yeah. So that's, that's how we come up with a stocking rate. That's the whole goal of that whole exercise is to come up with a, a stocking rate. And that value is something that we've found interchanges between ecotypes and states all across the West. It is only a freight that I would argue that the difference is the cost of freight in what that's worth. So let me use an example. If you were up at uh, uh, Wilbur's place, northern Montana, okay, and you're looking at a place where you're at, the difference in the actual intrinsic cost of that pasture might average, uh, I don't know, a buck 15 per cow per day or something. I don't know. Because it's a lot less where he's at because it's a freight basis away from where you're at. So if you're getting a buck 50, he might be getting 90 cents. And I don't know. That's right. just a generality. What I'm saying is it, it should all come out to about freight. And so if you have pounds of production, you know that a thousand pound cow is going to eat around 26 pounds of dry matter per head per day. 
And you can do that math wherever you are in the world and, and kind of figure that out, you know, and obviously there's local things and local niches and you try to become aware of those, but to get a baseline average and put a value on a piece of land, it's a hundred acres and it produces 30,000 pounds. You can do the math and you can say, this is how many animal unit months, standard animal unit months I can get off of that. And then you can divide that by 30.16 and get the number of standard animal unit days and boom, you have the, you have a value. That's all it is, you know? So, so it's not that hard. I think you've just got to break it into pieces and segregate it and make it scientific. And then it becomes something and, and you can put a value on it. And I think on the value, the dollar in roughly a dollar per cow day, if you just think of that, um, yep. you know, and, and you're doing the work that would get you a lease and that's fair. That's market, you know, and then there's all sorts of variables, variables being who does the work, right? Who does the work and who makes the decisions? There's the two variables. And yep. so, and, and timing of use, I guess that'd be the other one. And so, so does a landowner need to keep it out of grazing for something like they got a wedding next summer or they need to hunt in for two months in the fall? Like, okay, well then take those out, you know, that's okay. Take out that part of the value. Then you can figure out what you can do with the rest of the season and just average it. So uh, I, I think it's pretty simple math and we've used that with great effect, you know? And so how we do that often, we figure out who owns it. We map it out on web soil survey on, we do Google earth. You can change the Google earth becomes a KML or KMZ file. You yep. use a shape file converter, convert to shape file. You plug it into web soil survey. I do that all myself. And that saves me thousands of dollars per hour of work that I would have to hire somebody at ArcGIS to do. I, it's all public data. I can do it all for free, you know, or for the use of my time, you know, and it, believe me, it pays us back thousands of dollars per hour for me doing that. So, yep. yep. I'll, <laughs> you know, this year I'd like to say that, uh, you know, I go to the ranch to spend money and I come back to the office to make money. Sure. You know, if I, if I don't go out there, I don't spend, I spend less money and it seems like I can sit down here and I can make more money than, uh, well, I try to make more money than I can spend out there, but it doesn't seem to be always turn out that way. Um, I, I, I want you to talk about where you're at, what you're doing today real quick. So sure. <laughs> you're sitting on the side of the road. Yeah. And where are you at? I am in east well far western nebraska and i'm oh i've got some pasture cattle that were steers that didn't make the bus and i'm running them back to the owner just kind of a typical deal in the fall when we run several thousand head of stalkers for somebody so there's always a couple that'll miss roundup i i get it I, but i just kind of wanted to point out that you know you're so busy like you planned to pull over to the side of the interstate and get out your hotspot and your laptop and talk to me for two hours in the middle of hauling cows. I think that's pretty cool. And I just wanted yeah. to make sure that, that the listeners knew about that. <laughs> well, it is important to mention that my time is really scheduled. I was not willing to agree with you and you wouldn't have been either to do this on like a Sunday morning because, because I've learned the value of time and, and, and that is my family time. So I'm totally willing to do this and break it out in the schedule during the week. You know, I love to think we, we, we do a little bit of exaggerated bankers hours. So we work pretty hard when it's nice, but <laughs> half of that is given back to us in lifestyle because we're out where we want to be. We want to be outside when it's nice because we only get that six months out of the year. But believe me, in the wintertime, I'm in an office and, and not driving the nasty roads. I'm having a great time in the office doing really productive time. So 
that's something a lot of people I've learned that from the school and uh, I'm sure you have too. all of us workaholics have a hard time wrapping our heads around that I think but when we have families suddenly the importance of that becomes tenfold and most of my wealth is in my family and that's the truth and so that's really where I need to be devoting a lot of more time so. I think the real wealth a lot of my wealth is in relationships relationships yeah. you know with family with you know with some of the folks that I've met through doing this podcast that I've interviewed that that listen and reach out um I think that's that's where a lot of value is for me is is relationships and being able to make stuff happen a hundred percent so something else I want you, want you to get into <laughs> I, I've, I've been taking notes uh, tell me about this TV show that uh, that you got conned into doing tell me about that well about two years ago Dallas Mount was approached by somebody and I do not know who but I think with NEL uh, or, or at least RFP alumni who said, hey, there's a TV show called Going From Broke. And it is produced by Ashton Kutcher. And it's kind of a fun thing. And so there was a casting company who was casting for that. So Dallas just thought it was funny. And he, more or less, I think. And so he passed that on to Faith and I. So we did a short, I believe it was like a three minute video, like on your phone, Brian. And, right. And sent it in. Never like an audition anything. type thing. Yeah. Well, you answer a few questions. Mainly you just talk about yourselves and that's it. You know, kind of kind of animated. And they see you. if you're photogenic and interesting and have a story that they're wanting to tell. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I, I never would have guessed we were any of those, to be honest. But we sent that in. Um, didn't hear anything back, except for we did finally uh, kind of get a uh, denial. and Like, you're not going to fit on the show. Okay, cool. Well, that was season two. That was in 2021. They called us this spring and they actually said, um, hey, we want you to recast. Like, can you audition for this again? And we said, well, sure, I guess. I mean, we didn't, we just moved on with our lives. And they said, well, Ashton himself really wanted you back on the show. We didn't have enough slots last year. They said, well, you really should do this. I think you're going to get on it. And uh, so we're like, okay, well, I guess we'll, we'll apply for this show. And so so we did. And the show is about, it started out as a concept about the student loan crisis. And the first couple seasons are pretty heavily um, on that. It's a bad problem in the United States um, it, with free money. Like when I was <sighs> in school, I could just sign up for as much as I wanted on any given weekend to do whatever I wanted with. And, and it took a pretty astute individual who was not myself to resist that alert. You know what? I, I didn't go. Yeah. And I saw that happening, even like even right after I was getting out of the military. I mean, after boot camp, while I was in the military, yep. I was seeing that happen. And then, especially after I got out in mid two thousands, like you know, two thousand six, like, wait a minute, you're making money, going to school and not working. Yeah, yeah, I got I get these grants and I get these student loans and blah 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 blah. Okay. How much debt are you going to graduate with? Oh, it shouldn't be bad. It should only be $180,000. But with my degree, they say that, you know, starting positions are sixty to $80,000 in that field. Like, okay. Math doesn't compute. <laughs> like, I don't know where you took a financial literacy course, but yeah, that doesn't, 
that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Like moral hazard. You know, it's not, that's what it is. It's a moral hazard situation. Like the government has allowed people to put themselves in a position of moral hazard where they have, they don't know what they're signing up for. It's that you can't get rid of. And they're preying on, you know, 18, 19 year old kids that have not been told in public school that have not been taught about debt and interest and what a fucking legal binding contract is. Yeah. You know, yeah, like 100%. That, well, I get that. Uh, 100%. That's my well, yeah, <laughs> and 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 you're you're totally right. And so so there's something for you to know that you didn't know that waking up this morning, you and Ashton Kutcher have the same feelings about that particular thing. So he started this TV, or he's executive producer of this, um, along with another guy named Dan Rosenwig. And Dan is kind of a a big deal in New York. He's uh, in the financial circles. He's been he's currently CEO of a company called Chegg, and he's uh just really, really smart. You know, he's bootstrapped, built from the ground up. He was past COO of Yahoo, uh, big interest in Fender guitar right now and several other things. He, he knows business, right? And it's really cool to meet people like that. And so I guess to finish the story about the TV show, they asked us to be on it. We were accepted and uh, we did some filming and I don't know. I don't know. I probably shouldn't release much more other than it was a really strange experience other to be filmed. We were, uh, I have earbuds on today that I didn't even know what earbuds were when I started this whole experience, you know, and now, now I'm comfortable with it. Um, and now they're we handing you, you know, now that they're, you know, somebody hands you this little brick with a wire coming out and a microphone. You're like, okay. Oh yeah, just throw that in your back pocket, feed this microphone up through the shirt, clip that sucker right here. Yep. hundred percent. And when they ask you, to do your fourth take at something that's pretty inane you're, you're just good with it you're just chill you just know what's going on now it was super strange the first couple of times i i was uh like, i will say i had to be do you really need talk. four takes of me opening a gate like really <laughs> exactly. do we do we really need four takes of this or oh can you do that again that was really cool i'm like okay yeah let me go get that cow back and let her stand right here and i'll tell her <laughs> to do the exact same thing she just did exactly exactly no you're dead on and so, no, the whole experience was like surreal in the end, looking back that we were even picked for this. We have not seen any of the episodes. They must have 30 hours of runtime, uh, maybe more of interviews and stuff. We had to do some on, it's totally not staged. So that, I mean, I just told you about having to do multiple takes. That's a little different. The, the show is not staged at all. You know, it's basically a documentary style, like reality show type thing. It's and, like, oh, and they, oh, we didn't get that. Can you walk back? Can you come back over here and walk back to the pickup? Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. But you never know what's going to happen. Like, they wandered around for like three hours one day. Faith was trying to go out and do a deal with the sheep herd, and they couldn't find the sheep herd in the end. So she didn't write, really know where she was going, and they wandered around out there and finally came back. So there's a lot of things that aren't really planned on it. But, but I don't know what it's going to look like when it's done. But I will say this, Brian. They helped us and they helped us with financial aspects that i was not experienced in i hadn't reached that level of of uh you know expertise in the business and i've got a ton of foundation they looked at our ranching business which basically is a bundle of assets in some land that we've invested in that is coupled with a lot of debt 
Then they looked at our original enterprise, which was custom grazing. And they looked at that and they said, that's beautiful. You don't have to own anything to do that. And you make some money. And then they looked at the livestock ownership. And you know what they said? They said risk. They said, this is cool when it works, but when it doesn't work, this, this seems like it sinks you. And I couldn't believe the astute, um, you know, non-traditionalists, they know nothing about ag. And they very quickly boiled it down into the truth on, on ag. Because you, through, you know, experience with ranching for profit, you know how to write, you know how to keep your books and you know how to talk in terms that they understand, that business people yep. understand, which is something that, you know, I hate to say it, that a lot of cattlemen and ranchers lack because they sure. just don't have any experience with that. They've been, you know, listening to listening to their bank, the same banker for 30 years that's making 7% off of them right now. Right. But yeah, totally. Know, I, I, I totally get, I totally get that analysis and breakdown. I feel that in my checkbook. Like, custom grazing is great and i was just sitting here at, at, well not just sitting here I've, I've kind of been thinking about this for a while like is that i feel like the packers managed to quote chickenize the beef industry without anybody knowing about it without anybody having to build confinement barns they got us all to do angus cows like there's you know four or five major bloodlines of angus cows that's the majority of slaughter beef yep. black cows black cows certified angus beef you know and just what you said that you know the people from the tv broke it down owning livestock is risk when it works it works great but most of the time it's risk and it sucks custom grazing great second base hit great for cash flow low risk running a business with all your ass you know Least land, least livestock, least equipment. Everything goes bad. You can sell everything. You got no debt or get rid of everything. Yep. You got no debt. I mean, those are good places to be. It really scares me. You know, in, in 2022, with record high inflation, interest rates going through the roof, you got people that are like, well, it's a good time to start a ranch. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go buy 200 acres and I'm going to put 50 cows on it. And we're just going to, we're going to build a lot. We're going to feed hay because there's an ethanol plant down the road. And, and, and that's what it's turned into. It's turned into right. like Angus formula feeding for everybody. Right. Which, you know, that's okay. It'd be okay if those people that, you know, were raising steak cattle got steak price, but they don't, they get hamburger price for steak cattle that are fed $8 corn. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and it just doesn't the margins in livestock ownership. So here's something that I think you are doing a good job, I think, at developing a genetics program naturally acclimated to your ranch. I see the picture of them behind you. I was there probably really close to that. They look awesome. I love seeing your cattle. Yeah, we drove down this road that's that's back here did in you? the background. Yeah, yeah, yep, we did yep. drive down that road. Yep, yep. It looked pretty familiar. But you, you, you would. I just want to see where you stand on this. I would postulate that we don't get paid most of the time for our genetics on a commercial basis. Unless we're doing seed stock, unless we're doing direct sales, unless we, we're doing a Kushi, Waigu cross, so we get an extra you know leg up on the calf sales. Commodity 
commoditization commodities because food prices are artificially held so low to the producer we don't get paid for it and i would argue that it's flirting with not flirting with it is considerably under where it would be if it were not subsidized by mom getting a job in town by you know uh just pauper lifestyles where 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 yeah you drive a eighty thousand dollar pickup you only get paid what your grocery bill is each month. You have no savings account. You know, that that's so common. That's life in agriculture right now. That's oh, what oh, needs to change. Try it. You try to sell any has holes or quarters lately? No. Like, I, I don't want anybody to think bad any of my friends, but it just seems like there's a lot of America that's living hand to mouth that doesn't even have $500 to spare. Yeah that like doesn't even have a spare 500 bucks in her checking account by you know a half or a quarter i that's that's a bad situation to be in i mean and that's i've felt that i've been there multiple times in my life you know and i have too and i try not to be there i don't want to live there no no it's very but that's that's you know that's ag we are a total bundle of all this wealth wrapped up and it is real wealth if you choose to capitalize on it if you do not choose to capitalize on it in some manner you will just sit on it until it suddenly you don't have that wealth anymore whether you're forced to sell it or you are um you know for for some reason right like eventually imminent domain for some utility or something will or you have to capitalize on it and get it going like you can't i would argue that you can't sit on a nest egg and just just hope to have it a hundred years from now for your family. It just is not going to happen. You have to get it in motion. Things are only going up or going down. There is no such thing as a plateau, and and that's just a fact. And that's that's where a lot of I think a lot of people would think in in traditional family ranches that they're in a plateau. You know, they'd be willing to admit like, hey, we're plateaued, we're comfortable, and and I don't think that's true. I think they're really. They're showing a negative ROI on an economic basis by benchmark math. And that means intrinsically they're losing value. And it's all in, it's un, too, fortunately for right now, that's not into cash value. But I would argue that without CFAP injections three years ago in 2020, um, I would argue without, you know, a, a bit of an uptick in commodity end gains right now this year, well, either of those years, 2020 or 2022 would have been disaster. And, and, and I would also argue that next year, 2023, I'm excited about the price of beef as much, or the price of the producer value of beef as much as anybody. Like we saw some $1,200, $1,300 calves sell. We saw some $1,600 yearlings, $1,700 yearlings, even $2,000 yearlings. That's great. But the input cost is so high, the margin is much thinner than it was in 2014. And so we're getting excited about this. It's not something to be excited about. We're barely <laughs> treading water. And, and that's where we're being kept. So, And I think that, like they're telling us that it's a good thing. Like they're telling us that we're doing better, but I don't see anybody doing better. I don't see anybody doing better either. I don't see one of the big metrics that I use. Now this is an old fashioned metric. It's who's buying land. There's very few. It is not ranch money. And there's a very few, very astute ranchers. And I work with a couple of them who are buying land, but they're doing it um, very creatively. We'll say. And they're very, very intelligent in what they're doing. But the deal of like the rancher who looks good, right? Shiny on the outside, green tractors, red tractors. Let's not start a war there. Whatever color tractors, 
they look like they are doing well. I don't see a lot of those buying, you know, the neighbor's little chunk that comes up for sale very often. Most of them are still making land payments on the one they picked up in 2009, you know, and, and they're going to be for their whole lifespan. We got to, I got to pay a bill, but when we come back, let's talk about some of those creative ways that your friends are using to buy land. Cool. Cool. Introducing C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm and ranch. With over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance, C90 remineralizes soil, increases pasture quality, and elevates the wellness of your herd. Enjoy improved drought resistance, increased pasture protein and RFV values, and the elimination of pink eye and foot and hoof rot. Originally discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created in the Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Visit C90.com to learn more today. That's S. EA-90.com. C90 is available through distributors across the U.S., including over 200 tractor supply locations. Click the link in the show notes to find the dealer nearest you. We're always looking to grow our network. Give us a call or email today and be sure to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Please check the show notes for all the contact information. Now back to this week's episode. Hey, that wasn't bad, was it, Sage? That's beautiful. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that uh, happy to be working with C90. They're a good outfit. Uh, cows sure like the mineral or like the salt. And uh, I, w- I was sitting here thinking while that uh, while that ad read was going at uh, some of the beef that I'm getting back from the locker. I'm going to make some of my own beef jerky. I got to try to make some beef jerky. Yeah. And, uh, what What's the best beef to make beef jerky out of? Stuff that's really, really lean and doesn't have a lot of marbling. You bet. I think yep. I can cover that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can find some of that in these old, uh, some of my old cold cows. So we were talking uh, before the break about some creative ways to buy land. And that's kind of been a reoccurring theme with this conversation is, you know, how do sure. we, how does somebody starting out acquire land, resources, livestock, and contacts um, to be able to break into this business? And before I turn you loose again, uh, some of the advice that I've been trying to give is multi-species. Sure. So your ball. Sure. Yeah. So, so the first thing is uh, I like to think in terms of paradigm shifts from the norm. And the first thing is to realize that land is a, and after tax dollars investment. And secondly, it is um, different. You, you do not have to be an owner operator anymore. That's dead. It's gone probably forever. And so, so once those things are broken, you have to have money from somewhere to invest in land. And ideally, you need that to be from multiple income streams, right, Ryan, that are all leaving you some money after tax. So these are, these are not, what I'm saying is not heresy. That is a fact. If you do not have that, the land you try to get into, you will be back out of within three to five years. I mean, that's just the way it works. Um, right. You cannot bank on, I would especially argue right now, on inflate, inflation and appreciation on your land. In this, you know, We don't know what that's going to be. And so it, it, it has been a great speculation in the last 30 years. Banking but, on land appreciation to cash flow your ranch by like borrowing out that equity as you're going is a recipe to lose. It's a recipe to lose because you can't outweigh it. You, 
yeah, it's going to work in your favor. Land is everybody you'll talk to, everybody I talk to, they will say every piece of land I've ever bought was too expensive at the time. It didn't work, but it helped me out in the long run. And so I, I guess I would back up by saying, I think that land is a great investment, but it has to come second to you producing something first. And so the thing that's broken is you can't go buy the land of the cows. That's broken. I think we all understand that. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Um, the people that I know that are buying land are doing it because they have very successful businesses already going that are able to throw dollars at land investment. And that's what they're singularly focused on. They're willing to do something around the edges of their land to do something to capture a value from it. And I would argue that that becomes a pretty wide range. So the intrinsic value of land seems to me to always be the productive value. And there is some land, I would say some dry land, you know, especially I think on dry land crops, that seems to be pretty well valued for the productive value. That's kind of the value. And, and often that's flat, boring land. It doesn't have a lot of other value, you know. Uh, maybe the, intri the intrinsic value on it is probably the productive value plus the program coverage to be honest of of insurance and things like that 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 makes the value on that land or th this is just my take on it and i could be proved wrong on any of this on rangeland that we look at a lot the the value is in other stuff and it's inflated to i don't know double if not three times the value of the productive value so for example if we're we have some rangeland that produces 200 pounds per acre of forage harvestable <laughs> that's really low you know okay so so but 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 that that exists you know that's country where it takes 50 60 70 acres to graze a cow for the year um, there, there's some ground not too far away that probably doesn't have that much grass on it here. yeah 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 well that's too bad because i know you have a much better land <laughs> resource but but long story short that that land um is valued today probably at say $800 an acre. Okay, cool. So we own some of that land. We bought some, invested in some of that land. And I want that to be on my balance sheet as high as I can get it, right? So, so that's great. So let's say it's worth $800 an acre. I can't pay for that land for more than about, if, if we use the same metric, somewhere around $200 an acre is, is roughly what the productive value of that land is, okay? The, all the numbers we're using here are going to be wrong, but 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 the point is valid, okay? Um, so that's the formula time. still works. The formula still works. So so there's no way I. So the question is, a should we invest in that land at eight hundred dollars an acre, and b if so why? Well, we're going to have to develop something else. So so when you get into that land, there are different values. The first value I would argue is probably the tourism type value. And that encompasses hunting. It encompasses recreation. It encompasses um, like scenic. So, so think rocks, trees, and water, you know, that seems to be the core of it. If you've got those, you've got like some topography that you're like game on, like that's pretty investable from a land investment. And, and ironically, in some respects, some of the most aesthetically pleasing land is actually some of the poorest pasture like you've already brought up like it's 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 hard to get around in with your whole you know you have to have a horse you can't get around with a with a buggy or a four-wheeler or a, a motorbike you know and and so so those are counters sometimes and sometimes not but 
um, a lot of your more boring type land, it's valued closer to productive value. A lot of your really pretty lands closer to Yellowstone National Park, it's valued for all these other values. And then there are other values that are, so those things can be captured on, concessionalized and cash flowed for recreation purposes. And, and the, if you invest in land like that, you have to concessionalize quickly, I would argue. You can't, you can't wait five years to get in a hunting lease. You, if you're going to do it, you have to do it right away or right. the cash flow will drive you out of business like we just talked. The other values are these development type things. And, and that's how I break things in my mind is into this really simple forms. Development meaning surface access, like maybe they need to cross with a pipeline. They need to cross with a transmission corridor. That I think these are things that I see people looking at when they're investing in land and they say, there's already a pipeline corridor in the area. They're probably going to go through here again with another pipeline in the next 10 years. It's a pretty good bet in those corridors. They don't get access to new corridors very often. They love to parallel the old corridors. Like, and a pipeline access, a lot of people spend a lot of time fighting them. I have no problem with personal fighting anything and getting it to go around your ranch for certain reasons. What I will say is you're leaving money on the table if you don't at least consider it, these other forms of income. And I've seen those things pay for the ranch, it feels like in the first couple of years for a pipeline going across or, or pay for a good chunk of it enough that it made it worthwhile. So the, in that example I gave, it's worth 200 an acre intrinsically. There's an extra $600 an acre and other stuff. I think it's not unreasonable to pick up $100 an acre value um, amortized over time in, in your hunting rights, your recreational rights. I think if you pick up another $300 in value in development rights, and, and that gets you in the ballpark of paying for that land. And that gets you to a negotiation table. And that's how land values exist. Um, the people that I see investing in more land are willing to try for that extra thing. And I think that it depends on their level of financial maturity. The most successful ones usually are willing to speculate just a bit that they might not know what that thing is, but they know there's going to be a thing. And they usually find that out during their due diligence and their price discovery period. And, but I would argue that they try to buy it closer to productive value and throw that in on top, you know? So, and those guys are successful. Those guys and gals and, and the people that are doing that sort of, but if you go in the mindset of being a rancher and you're gonna mortgage your ranch, you're running cow calf and you're gonna buy the neighbor's ranch, you won't even get to talk to the bank. I mean, unfortunately, because the last thing they want is five years from now, they know they're just going to be trying to resell your ranch. <laughs> and, 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 and they don't want to do that either. And I, I think that that's going to be a real difficult thing right now. I Look at this year, Brian. I started this year with a 5% interest rate on my line of credit. I am going to end this year. I might be double that. I don't know where it's headed. But I know that <laughs> I'm over seven right now. And when that last three-quarter hike comes, when I haven't got the letter about it yet, but it might be in the mailbox, and that's going to be nine. Are real close, you know, and it's, we're they haven't be, been regularly coming every 28 days. You haven't been getting those rate increase notices regularly. No, we're working with an awesome bank, but uh, coming quarterly is bad enough because it jumps up by higher than you keep track of. So <laughs> I don't think it, maybe they have missed a couple opportunities in the last two months, but uh, there for a while, I think I got six or seven in a row. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah my, well, my, so you want to, you know, my line of credit doubled. Yeah, it doubled. And I think that's what we're planning on ours double. We're planning on on paper ours being at 9.5 or 10% at the end of this year. 
And that's what we have to make money on next year. And if it's not making money, we're not using that credit. Like we have to make 15, 20% next year at a bare minimum to even be worth using that line of credit, or we're going to figure out how to operate without that line of credit. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. So um, the other thing that I really saw that inflation is in vehicle, not so much in the vehicle prices. Everybody's aware of that. I had got an auto loan in a couple of years. I went and looked at auto loans um, to get a new auto loan today. Like I would have thought like six and a half, seven percent was like, eh, that's too much risk. I'm not sure I like that in the past five, six years. And I've done a couple when I needed to. And then we've quickly restructured them and got them down to five percent or four percent. Right. Well, well, I went and looked the other day and and uh, freecreditreport.com for what it's worth. It said that it was offering automobile rates at 11 to 16 percent. I, I don't know what dealer rates are right now, but I'm just telling you, uh, if that's jumped up, I guarantee that you go to it, you know, try to finance a car 100 percent like you could for the, for the last 15 years. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. I think you're going to have to pay 12 percent for that money. And that is a terrible investment. Where are you finding new vehicles on the lot for sale? Yeah, I don't know. That's, it's all related, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't seen, I haven't seen a, a twenty. I don't yep. think I've seen a twenty twenty two model anything yet, much less right? on a dealer lot that somebody could go up and 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 purchase. But yeah, totally. like, you know, purchase price of vehicles. Um, there was a graphic that I did. I'll oh, probably back in the spring, and it was it was really old, and it was kind of comparing prices of a pickup in I think like nineteen seventy two or nineteen eighty two to two thousand twelve. In terms of how many cows or calves, steer calves, right? No, it was cold cows. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was cold cow math. And it was like, you know, back in the eighties, you could take three, $800 cows to town and come home with a new pickup for 2,500 bucks. And now you need to take about, you know, damn near a hundred, $600 cows to town to buy a new feed pickup. That's it, it. well, I don't even know if a guy could get a $60,000 feed pickup brand new right now. Like even, even the cheapest gas one ton short bed tradesman option is probably still 60 or $70,000. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Well, it, <laughs> yeah. And, and used stuff isn't, isn't any better. You know, so there's, there's that kind of inflation. There's inflation at the pump. There's the inflation that we're all seeing at the grocery store. Well, that a lot of folks are seeing at the grocery store that aren't growing their own food. Um, and money, money's getting expensive. Um, you know, it's, it, it's bad. Uh, and before we segue into something we talked about earlier, um, you know, we've been talking about the productive intrinsic value of land and buying land and how to do that. And I, I appreciate your comments on monetizing other things in the ranch past livestock. And that's something that a lot of people don't think about is, you know, okay, I want to buy a ranch and have cows. Well, a lot of us want to do that so we don't have to deal with people. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's the connections, it's the people that really make the world go around, and it's the connections that make us whole and keep us grounded to the universe. And who are we to hoard this land and not allow others to enjoy it? Yeah. Now, there's the other part of that is, you don't just want to open up the ranch to the general public because, you know, we see what national parks look like. Right. 
you know, and they have a budget for road maintenance. They have a budget for trash cleanup. They have, you know, they have restrooms. Like, I don't, I, if there was, if there was maybe a way to allow people to enjoy the land and they wouldn't disturb it, that would right. be one thing. But, you know, the way society is, is like opening up my place to the general public. That's the last thing I want to do. Um, but, you know, being able to sell, sell some day fishing. Yeah. You know, that's a thing. Sell bird watching. Um, you know, e even Camping. if you don't, yeah, if you don't Camping. have, a, yeah. if you don't have a livestock resource, do you have do you have electricity? Do you have water? Do you, you know, putting RV hookups in is cheap. It's, it's yep. a relatively cheap thing. And those can turn for 50 or $80 a night or even more yep. depending on location. You know, it doesn't take long to pay off a $400 install for, you know, a water hydrant and a power plug when you're paying that off at 50 or hundred dollars a night. Well, I think, I think if you go to other countries, which I'm not, I'm not claiming to be a world traveler, but I've read about a lot of this we're spoiled to death here in America with vacant land that we don't use for anything. And we are spoiled with like all this stuff that we think we need. Um, yeah. And we're just not doing a good job of, <laughs> of capturing all of it. You know, if, if we were the, just federal land, for example, that wouldn't exist other places. We have a luxury here in the United States to have that like kind of a deal or or if it was existing in other places, it'd be federally owned lands that is then collectively farmed in some sort of manner under somewhat well, I, negative. I, I, I think you might almost have it backwards. That sure. in a lot of European countries, yep. that there's not really private land ownership. There might right. be like a no. writ of occupation or, you know, but you don't. Right. You lease uh, it from the federal government. Yeah, like. like England is England is England is probably different, you know, because there are people that actually own land there. Then there are people that, you know, that live on crown land that work crown land. And then there's people that, you know, there's trust, there's public trust land that, that, anyway, way more complicated. I don't live there. I don't care. Like three people listen to this podcast live there. If you want to know more about it, we'll do another show. But anyway, um, intrinsic value of land. Yeah. Getting getting more people out there and getting them back in touch, not just with the land, but with livestock. And I guess the comment I really want to make is how far distorted are the in how uh, I get my words together one of these days. How distorted is the intrinsic production value of the land? How much is that being distorted by things like crop insurance, subsidies, right. uh, or even pasture insurance like uh, PRF? Right. Uh, it has to be significant. I, I don't know if it's 50% or, you know, 10%, Ryan, probably somewhere in that range, wouldn't you guess? Yeah. But, you know, all, all of those things, crop insurance, the subsidies, the LRF, you know, the, the CFAP that you've talked about, all these are tools that that the government is giving us to quote mitigate risk and a lot of it i don't see as necessarily mitigating risk you know it's it's the moral hazard of not being accountable not being responsible for the financial implications of your choices that's mm -hmm. what moral hazard is and right mm -hmm. now there's a lot of people in the livestock industry that own cows yep. that have put a lot that have exposed themselves to a lot of moral hazard yep. in the worst way, 
you know, whether it's with their money and, and a living animal that they don't have a plan to feed or it's or it's somebody that has has risked more than they have because they're held up by that by that safety net of crop insurance and subsidy and prf and the thought that's on my mind right now like i learned how to manage without prf okay prf is not a tool in my toolbox anybody that's listened to me for more than probably three episodes know that i love to yell taxation is theft subsidies are socialism and that's what i see prf as it's just it's 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 a social it's a subsidy it's a subsidy mm-hmm. it's socialism like you can't tell me that oh yeah it returns back over the long term 110 of your premiums back to you in your pocket over a long-term 10-year period that's how the program's designed that's obviously a subsidy like that's that's mm-hmm. taking money from somebody else okay yep and the way i look at a prf okay in a good year I can owe them like $30,000, $40,000. I can't afford that in a good year. Like sure. the payments in a bad year would be nice. Like right now, it'd be great to right. have that PRF money. But I couldn't afford it if, if it rained next year. Totally. And that's the, that's the thing that bugs me is like guys will see this PRF and they'll say, okay, well, my grass is insured. And if it doesn't rain, I'll just get all this PRF money and I'll go buy hay. And that model works up to a point. That model works yep. up until the drought gets big enough and long enough that we're in a situation like we're in. You know, you're in third year. I still say I'm in second year looking at third. And I, you know, I, I totally get that, that, you know, that first year that you're talking about three years ago, that was a relatively weak. Yep. And for me down here in Southern into Kansas, it's really dependent on how that jet stream makes its southern swing in the La Nina mm-hmm. and El Nino years on which side of it I am. Because I can, it's, it can almost be a crapshoot for me right here in the middle of the country. Like on a La Nina, I can get hot, dry. Then you get cold, dry. I can also get the cool, wet of a La Nina. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting that. <laughs> I am not getting the cool, wet. And I have not gotten the cool, wet. Let me tell you. Sure. I mean, it's, it's all in the dry side and it's been that way for three years. And you know, looking at another year of it, right? Um, you know, it, it all the PRF payments in the world and the CFAT payments in the world aren't going to buy hay that doesn't exist. That's my nope. point. And and they don't. I, there's two ways to structure PRF. So, and in full disclosure, we use PRF insurance, and there are two ways to do it. One is you do it off the math and off the analogs. And the other is you just hedge your drought risk. You know, what you think is your months that you're like, I think, um, you know, May and June, if we don't get, so I should just put it all there. If we don't get that, we're gonna get all the payment, you know, or a big chunk and that's hopefully gonna make it better. And my only comment is PRF insurance helps you cash flow and equalize the situation and prevents you from, you know, volatilization. Um, the uh, the biggest reason we play it though isn't that brian so so i guess what i was going to say was it does not ever we have not had a year even when we've received significant income from prf insurance rain pasture rainfall and forage insurance we have not had that make up for the loss in forage although it's helped it isn't a one for one and and 
Um, it's just enough to where you're like, y'all, that took the sting out of it. But I will, what, what I will say is we are only doing programs because it feels like the current ag system is built on a pay to play. You have to do it system. And we use FSA financing. And once you're in the system a little bit, then you're in it all the way. I think a person could run a perfectly viable operation without any of that. But I would say that our competitors, that is the most alluring part of that to us is that we're in competition with lots of people who have, you know, it's easy for them on multiple entities to each one max out $250,000 of net income due to program payments. And they might do that on six different entities. And it's hard for us to compete with people who are able to do that if we're just going to take the moral stance that we're not. So we, we do the programs um, because we're not in a position to not be able to, if that makes sense. But I try to do it ethically. We, we really think about like the CFAP deal. We took what we thought was maybe helped take the sting out of that market wreck that we actually suffered. And we didn't file for stuff over and above that. You know, I would take like a disaster payment, um, but only I have not found them to, I've only taken one and it was nothing close to the amount of livestock that we lost in a winter blizzard. Um, it was not even close, you know, it wasn't even a dent. It was just a little bit where it was like, I, I don't know. I, I still don't even know if I'd take that one again, you know, <laughs> but, but honestly, just, right. just that, I know that, I know this, that since, since federal policy and tax policy is trying to keep food dollars low in the United States of America, and under my understanding of economics, that we are in a system a bit there where if like my grandpa has no debt or anything, so he doesn't play any of these systems. Um, I have to make a living. I think PRF has been a good tool for me and my family, but I know you're not trying to debate PRF. I'm just saying that I totally agree with you, but I'm seeing from the other side of the coin of like, God, I've, I feel like I've almost had to do some of this stuff and that's a problem. Oh, I, I 100% get that it makes complete business sense for you and for a lot of other folks in in other situations um it just doesn't it just doesn't work for me it, it yep. just yep. it just doesn't work for me <laughs> i'm with you man i'm with you i love and 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 so i was listening to a great economist that i want to really throw out there peter zion or zian i don't know how to pronounce his last name peter zion yeah he's a yeah. geopolitical analyst we've uh, yeah, we've talked about him on the show a couple times. Oh, uh, I love what he's, I, 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 not just because I like parts of what he's saying for American ag, but I think that what he's saying makes a ton of sense and he's a macroeconomist. And that seems to be the only part of economics that makes any sense to me is the macro, you know, to be honest, that's the real long-term, like, how do we build something that's sustainable for the future of our family? So a few little nutshells of that that make sense, and I know we'll be right up your alley. Um, localized ag, we're not going to be shipping these commodities. For goodness sakes, in 2022, 30% of our beef exports have went to China. That market did not exist two years ago. Can you imagine what a black swan that would be labeled if China just cuts off tomorrow? You know, I, I, I think, I, and, and the strong dollar that we're faced with right now, he would say that more localized is the only way things are going to survive. We're not going to be freighting. I'm not going to be freighting alfalfa hay to you in Kansas, and you're not going to be freighting calves to me to summer 
you know, and this mismatch of stuff all around the world. We need to figure out how we're going to do it within our little box. And that's going to be the future. And I, I don't think that we're going to be sending unit trains of corn over the Rocky Mountains to California. I don't right. think we're going to be, I don't think we should be pumping water over two mountain ranges to irrigate agriculture in a desert. Um, I, so, you know, we're, we're talking about Peter Zihana. He has a, his latest book out, I think it's called the end of the world is just beginning. It came out, um, came out in June or July. It's on audiobook. I mean, it's great. And it was finished in February just before the Ukraine war. Yep. And and since the Ukraine war has been going on, I've been I've been really trying to keep up on what Peter says on his YouTube channels and you know some of the couple of the podcasts that he's done since then, and update his predictions. I respect what you're saying, but I think his outlook for U.S. agriculture is far too rosy. Sure, sure. And you know that's probably a good segue, you know, to talk about a new model of ranching. Yeah, a new breed of cattle coming to dominance and the market implications of high feed prices and what that's going to do to food price down the line. Oh, that sounds like a ton of fun. So it was your term. You said new model of ranching. So let's start there and, and take that one apart. Perfect. So because it's a land-based thing, ranching and livestock and such, we have to have the land to do it on. And because the land paradigm has shifted from an owner operator to a land investor and an operator, two totally different things, that is the new model of ranching has to be built around that. So in my mind, for somebody starting out, finding land that they, and not even thinking about owning land is the most healthy model that they need to be into. That doesn't mean that they won't own land someday. What it means is, they need to be doing that when they have the means of cash flow, and then they can become a land investor. And then they need to be thinking in a different hat, putting on a land investor hat when they're dealing with their land investment. And they need to take that hat off when they're operating on that land. They're related at the biological level and the ecological level, but they are not related on a business level anymore. It, it just doesn't work. And, and that may change. That could change. A depression could change that and make it all right back to the intrinsic value. And and a person doesn't want to rule that out, I don't think, according to Peter Zihon or anybody else, you know. Um, okay, so so the model of, you know, being an operator requires you to have soft skills, people skills. That's exactly where you're headed. And that is so important. Here we are, and I've said it before, but a bunch of people who don't really like people, and we're, we're wanting to just get away from everybody and be all by ourselves in the middle of nowhere. And that's kind of the, that's, that's really cool. Like that is American exceptionalism at, at its core at some level of, but the other half of that is toil and work. And, and unfortunately, energy units don't compute right now. You can't work enough. There isn't enough daylight hours to, it worked with, before the invention of the tractor. You know what I mean, Brian? And, yep. and, and before, after that, it on, you know, so it still works in third world countries all over, all over the world. But where right fuel now, is you, expensive. Exactly, exactly. But, but the economics have changed here because of convenience, because of all this stuff where, where we can work so hard, but I can't make enough money for my family without doing outside things, you know, or going, you know, and own the land and so on and so forth. So, so with that new thing in mind, yeah, 
I think the other important thing is that you don't have to own all the livestock. And that's part of the new model. I do believe in the, in the economies of scale because that does exist under the current commodity system. Um, for example, while it still exists before, because some of the stuff that Peter Zion talked about was a long ways down the road. Not a long ways, but not, not long enough to be comfortable with, but 20 years down the road, 10 years down the road. While it still exists where we're freighting livestock around, I do think it behooves you to think in terms of labor units and in terms of freight loads of livestock if you're going to be moving said livestock very far or marketing said livestock. Okay. What, what do you and, mean by, by labor, labor loads and freight loads? Labor units. So labor units are totally different than freight units, but they're both basically, you know, let's just call them expenses. Freight units are expenses per animal, so they're direct costs. Uh, labor units are an over, overhead cost for most of us. Um, so, so two things. When well, we I look get that. I'm, I'm, just, I'm wondering yeah. how they're related in that statement. Totally, totally. So with sale of livestock and marketing, freight units becomes important. You need to have a load lot of calves to command that last little bit of value on that if you're right. going to be in the commodity cycle. And that exists for grain commodities, exists in oil, all commodities you have to be thinking about freight right now under the current system. And I think I would argue you need to think about it more right now by double than you did a year ago because freight has doubled. And I think that a lot of the, a lot of the inputs into ag is going to be in freight. And a lot of that has a lag time that's like a year or two years. And I don't think we're paying for that right now yet. I think we're going to be paying in another year. There's going to be a lot of people that need a bigger operating line of credit because what they were just doing at $3 a mile does not work at $7 a mile, you know, moving cattle around, moving freight. Okay. So, so what I mean by a lay, I think you do have to, there's two ways to go about it. Unless you're going to direct market all of your animals on your place, which, which can work, but it's a ton of work, as you know, Brian. Yeah. The other way, if you're going to enter the commodity cycle and sell calves or steers or bred heifers, anything, you have to sell a load of them or be ready to sell a load. Now, I'm not saying you have to ultimately do that, but I would argue that it, it pays you to reach an economy of scale there at a certain level. And, and, and one truckload is a nice economy of scale that will enable you to do it cheaper than taking that same truckload in horse trailer loads with your time to the same market. Okay. doesn't matter the distance of the market, the same thing. It's just math. Yeah. Um, the, the, so, so we tend to think in terms of labor units for a minimum a, a viable operation. So um, for example, if you're going to sell commodity calves, you better have 100 steer calves to sell or as close to 48,000 to 52,000 pounds as you can. So, that might be 110, might be 115. To produce 115 steer calves, you've got to have at least double that, right, in cows, but you're need not going to have a perfect... Yeah. Probably need about 250 cows. Yeah, 250 to 300 is really the number because you're only going to have, you know, 85% of animals exposed that actually produce a calf or wean a calf the following year, you know, so, so you've got to be greater in number. So that gets you a minimum economy of scale if you're going to chase a commodity deal. The only reason I say all that is because you better not think about selling into the commodities without doing some extra stuff unless you're going to reach that minimum economy of scale. And that right. is a fact. Now, you can reach that scale on little small holdings in an urban environment. I would argue, you know, moving your cows around a lot. I've seen people be successful at that. You can reach it in the large West when you're willing to work at a big BLM a lot. It doesn't matter either. So, um, but then the other part of it, and I'll tie it in with labor, is you have to be able to fundamentally take care of those animals 
at a high degree, you know, where animal stewardship is being done and animal husbandry is being taken care of. And animal welfare is not going away. We have to be very diligent in taking care of our animals. And so we tend to think, you know, I think that the Burke Tiger idea of one cow per thousand, or oh, I'm sorry, one man per thousand cows is great from a financial perspective, but it's pretty unhealthy. I think, you know, for the people involved in working on that environment. But economically, you can't hardly go under one, one man per 400 cows. It just, the math doesn't work. We don't have that much margin to pay for that guy. And so somewhere in there is probably the number. Um, and we tend to think of that when we're picking up a new lease at this point in time. Um, so the first step to that though, is what can you do? You know, and a person reaches a point of saturation after you've been three years of working every day and, and you have never had a day off and you're, and suddenly you're trying to get married or something. It works great as a single person. You can go do a lot of stuff when you try to get married. And then suddenly you have another person there who's probably not willing to go work with you the same hours and go do the same stuff that you're perfectly content to do. I mean, this is my, and that kind of wants you home every once in a while. They want to see you like, that's why they married you. And it has nothing to do with the finances. It has nothing to do with anything else. They just want to see you. And it's, it, it, it won't exist very long where you're all in the field, like doing these pasture walks, barefoot, moving stuff that won't exist very long is my promise. You know, that's a glorified thing. It can exist after a period of time. Um, when you try to step back in, uh, but to get full circle to there. So the first labor unit you pick up beyond is yourself. The second one, it's pretty easy to do that, make a good living. But then after you went three years, you've never had a vacation, you've never gotten away for a weekend, you're going to look at hiring somebody else just to take the load off. And that's going to start as like contract labor. Contract labor can be a great thing. And a lot of people would stop there at scale. Like I'm claiming in all this, a big hypothesis is labor units define your scale and should define your scale. Yes. And, and contract labor is a great fit for many people. Um, and a lot of people with personalities, I think you're probably one of those, Brian, we talked about that. You know, you don't like having a full-time hired man, if I remember right, so on and so forth. That's yeah. okay. Like my grandpa's in that boat too. But um, if you want to achieve the next level, then you've got to figure out how to, you know, deal with a hired man. And that's, I think it's each, each of us ourselves has to figure out where we're at on that spectrum. Um, for us, a hired man was like a breakthrough, like a big breakthrough. Suddenly we could bounce off each other. We both had like time off once in a while. We both got to do cool things. You know, we could split it. Um, and then that has led into where I went more into management and putting deals together and stuff to where I needed another hired man. Well, suddenly I wasn't on site. So the physical labor, the rules that applied when I was involved in physical labor didn't apply anymore. Cause I needed two people out there because I built a business that required two people to be out there. So then you have two people and that is actually our minimum scale at this point. Now that is not everybody's, nor should it be economy of scale. But when we look at a unit, we look at the labor use efficiency and the freight side, like I just mentioned. So you could say 600 cows, two guys, minimum, bare bones. And that has to be something that we think we could increase to, you know, a thousand cows within just a couple of years. And that is, I think the model, and Bud Williams said that not less people should be on the land. He thought more people should be on the land. And I have thought a lot about that statement of his because it didn't make sense. Because at the same time I was hearing that statement, I was getting educated 
by Burke, who's also a genius in his own veritable right. And he's saying, no, we need a thousand cows per man hour. They're saying the same thing. They're just saying it from different ends of the economic spectrum. But yep. they were thinking the same thing. I think that the, the next value on the land is more people on the land. and You can create redundancy in systems by having more people, not less. Any business would tell you that. That has to exist. Technology is the thing that bridges that gap. But technology can't get you uh, a fix on the water tank. You might get a picture of the water tank that's out of water out there. You still have to go fix it. And you have to respond within minutes of when you have that information. I would argue that technology cannot completely replace. Um, and surely you would agree with the ecology part of it. We have to go out there and feel it and smell it and see it to really get interlaced into the system. You know? And I have a lot of respect for people who are small horticulturalists or pastoralists and are running 20 cows and six sheep. I think it's amazing what they're doing sometimes at a really small micro scale. So, so the scale for me is not the scale for everybody. The labor units for me is not the same for everybody. But uh, there are some things that happen as you, as you ratchet up in economies of scale. I get some opportunities. Here's a really simple one. I get, because we operated at an economy of scale, I might get a free pair of gloves from my trucker who I paid $15,000 this year. That's minor. But guess what else I get from my trucker? I get first response. If, if he doesn't, he doesn't, he picks up the phone every time he's excited to come to work for us and come and help us. And he can do it Johnny on the spot if I'm in a bind. You don't get that at a lesser economy of scale. You just can't. They can't afford to come there and so on and so forth. So there are things in American capitalism that lead you to have a certain economy of scale. And I think that underserving ourselves and our families on our ranches with the labor is really worth focusing on. <laughs> and so a big chunk of the labor can come. I really like the, I really like the, the intent of the Joel Salatin enterprise stacking model. I don't think that some of the applications fit everywhere, but I will say that I like the intent of it in that if you're going to come to work here, create your own position, right. create something that adds value in a complete new economic thing. And, and, and I like that model. And I think that we would like to do more of that model where somebody comes on and they are creating more value than was there before. And you're achieving, let's say, a bare basic metric of dollars per acre or something has been increased by their presence on the range. And that's a great deal. I think I would go so far as to say quite heretically that like we started out this conversation in 20 or 30 years, there will be more people on the land. I don't, I don't think that's even something to argue about. That's a fact. There's going to be more people on the land because there's going to be, you know, at some level, more people. Um, but there, there, there will be more dispersion and less conglomeration. And I know that we've headed there the last few years. A lot of people can only see that far. And they're saying, hey, the uh, grand ranches are consolidated. I, I think that we're, we're going to see consolidation. Why do we see consolidation, Brian? It's because they have an economic model that pushes for consolidation. Once that economic model fails or changes, we will see deconsolidation and these things starting to change. So I think the future for people starting right now is to push your way to scale and it's going to feel that way. And then you're going to be in the position to maybe you conglomerate in 50 years, you know, into something. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah. I, you're not, I don't think you're wrong. I think that though, you know, with, with the current financial economic system, unless something changes dramatically with, with subsidies, because I think, you know, 
we hit on it earlier that a lot of, you know, quote, federal food subsidies or federal food, federal programs are designed to keep food cheap. And I get that. And, you know, I totally understand that, you know, good nu nutrient dense food should be plentiful for all people. And, you know, there's that asterisk there, but, you know, if you want to eat good nutrient dense food, you probably shouldn't be shopping a whole lot at Walmart. And you definitely need to stay at a dollar general, you know, sure. go to the farmer's markets. That's where you're going to find that. But if that's really the government's goal is to feed everybody nutrient dense food, farmer's markets would be subsidized. Right. But that doesn't, that, that's not what the system encourages. That's not where the subsidies flow. And you know, what I'm getting at, you know, we talked a little bit about, about the, you know, intrinsic production value of land, whether we're talking about irrigated cropland or dry land or pasture land, that it's all being distorted by, by crop subsidies, you know, and, yep. and to some extent, um, land price in a lot of places is influenced by what uh, a CRP payment would be on a piece of land. That's why people buy CRP land. That's what it's traded for for the past 20 years is the value. They don't ever do anything with it. I, I, yeah, it, it blows my mind that you can buy a piece of ground that's in CRP as long as you keep putting that contract on it and then pay the land purchase price, like pay your mortgage with a CRP payment and still have money left over. While guys like you and I are struggling to pay our damn taxes, you know, working all day in the hot sun with cows. It, it, it doesn't make sense. But so what I'm saying is, you know, we've got land prices and land values that are distorted by crop insurance, by CRP, by PRF. We've got livestock prices at the barn, you know, the commodity price that's being distorted by subsidized grain, subsidized feed. At some point, the music has to stop. Sure. At some point, we reach a tipping point where, where, where a lot of things become uneconomical. And then, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's kind of like, a, it's, it's a house of cards that's on, shaky that's on shaky footing. You know, we built this up and yeah, there's people that make a lot of money investing in, in real estate. You know, real estate's always been a successful bedrock of the American economy. Well, I was alive during 2008. Okay, I remember that real estate meltdown and I saw it coming in 2004. Like I saw a flashing neon sign in red that says this shit is bad and it's going to blow up. It just took a lot longer than I thought it would. Sure. And you know, a lot of that money that, you know, was that was going to build up houses that nobody needed to that nobody needed to live in, right? Right. <laughs> A lot of that money went there and, you know, with the reforms or the post 2008 reforms, you know, Dodd Frank and a couple of the other ones that got through a lot of that money, I think went to hunting property or a ranch property or to farmland. Yeah. And, and it's been underreported. So there's, I don't know how to say this, but there's, there's a reckoning coming with the intense, with the intrinsic production value of land. Sure. versus food price versus the labor it takes to make that food like it, it we're not as we're not anywhere close to any point that's sustainable by any measure of imagination 
that this current system can go on at the current prices and the current input prices. Right. And it's worse right now than it's been. The, 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 you're, you're dead on there. And I don't see any relief. Like I don't, I don't plan on seeing gasoline back to a dollar 65 probably ever. And, and that's, and, 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 but there's a lot of people I think that are probably guilty of saying, well, it'll, it'll cycle down. It'll, it, this will happen. If we saw that it would be, be relative value wouldn't be the same. You know, there's just been another big bite taken out of this whole industry <laughs> is all it is. And, and there's a lot of people that cleaned up last fall on the farming segment because they came into the year with, with expectations quite a bit lower. And then suddenly they got just this bumper crop year. That's going to happen in beef. You're, we're going to see that. We're going to want to take advantage of that. Maybe the key in all of it, Brian, all this forecasting we made, about 50% of that is going to be right, and 50% is going to be totally wrong. I mean, that's, that's as good an odds as we have to hope for. We don't know which 50%, but we do have to keep our businesses fluid. And I, I think that's so important. We have to be ready to change with the times. You know what? If the market asks me to produce 600-pound calves, and, 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 and it honestly is telling me that I need to be able to react as much as my cringe to do that. And I hope it doesn't happen. I have to get out the calving barn and clean her out and get to calving. If it's telling me to do that, I have to be able to react. I use that as a really extreme example to say, we can't be so married to these principles, these things that we've learned as ideas. And RFP is, that's one big thing that needs cleaned up about it. It teaches you to think. That's all it teaches you to do. It does not teach you to calve in May. It does not teach you to do any of this. And that's that's my biggest argument to, to naysayers is, is you've really, the number one thing you can do is just to stay educated and, and up to date with right now. You just have to deal with that, you know. So What did you right learn now, at Ranching for Profit? I learned that I'm an idiot. I learned that the answer <laughs> is in the group. And I learned that I don't know how to run a business. That's what I learned at Ranching for Profit. Oh, I heard they just tell you to calve in the summer. No. they. You get asked a lot of questions that might lead a lot of people to the understanding that they should calve in the summer and sell their hay equipment and fit, quit feeding hay and go into the custom grazing business. It also leads people down completely different other paths. It leads people to buy a seed stock herd. It leads people to buy damn apple orchards and get into doing bees i mean exactly it's, it's all kinds of stuff and i wish people would just say well they teach it ranching for profit is you need to quit making hay quit feeding hay and calve in june and you know whatever like okay that's <laughs> that's not even intellectually honest assessment of the course and that's not, not even, at all yeah. yeah yeah and and so 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 without going too far down that tangent but that that's the number one thing I think we can do, you know, to, to finish the model, to finish the model that we'd started discussing, the new era of ranching is not going to be steeped in tradition. The new tradition has to be that you will continue to involve your model. And, and, and that's it. So, so the model I just talked about, I think is very pertinent to today's economics. I think we have to be willing to change that. I don't know as if a person should be i've been that person who's been flighty and back and forth between different things and enterprises that's bad too but i think like three years dig in try an enterprise if it's not working but have certain parameters that it has to meet 
Um, usually financial metrics and economic metrics, if it doesn't meet those, realize that economics are changing. And I think that the next 30 years, is, uh, there's one thing we can all agree on, is going to be more volatile. You know, we're going to get more economic things that are telling us to do stuff. So be more willing to change. Maybe the time frame you stick with an enterprise shortens a little bit because it has to. And the fact is for a young person entering bootstrap like we were, we did not have the ability to get into something that wasn't going to work because otherwise we were just out of business and we we're back to looking for a job, you know, and, and that isn't in my wheelhouse. I don't want that. I want to build a business that can invest in land as an investment because I find value in that. But in I, doing I, it, I just can't see Sage Askin going to work every day in a suit and tie carrying a briefcase. <laughs> like that image just doesn't compute in my brain. No, no. And, uh, but, but, but more and more frequently, I've resonated with people that do. I, I think I, I really enjoyed the guy from New York being out because we could talk the same language. And I've been taught that through RFP. I, and, and, and that, I think you have to be as, I, I don't want to say boring terms like sustainable systems thinker and stuff like that. What I do want to say is you have to realize it starts in the soil and it works its way up. I, I think you have to be very focused on that. I think with the animals, you have to be very focused on husbandry. That's something that's lost. We haven't focused on that since the 50s in the United States. We need to be thinking about husbandry and caring for those animals. How animals are, are handled on a lot of ranches is horrible. It's horrible. And, and grandpa told me uh, one time that there's a lot of people in the ag business who are ranchers, second, third generation, who shouldn't even be near a cow. <laughs> and that yeah, was how, a really how good do we ever get cows loaded on anything without a hot shot? Yeah. Yeah. Because they knew what they were doing, <laughs> you know, and, and that's it. And so, and then at the upper level where we really lose sight, we can, we, a lot of people can figure out those lower level things. And by lower, I mean, ground up people, we got to figure out the people skills and the networking. And that's going to be the people that are successful in the next 30 years are going to be good at internet, inner working at relationships. The look, there used to be a localized thing where you could run roughshod over people in a local thing. I think that's gone away in large part due to the expansionist, you know, globalism where, okay, cool. I can just do business over there. But I think that maybe some of that'll, you know, you, we've got to get along. I think it's changing now where you've got to interlace and work together. I, I, I don't like infighting within the industry. Uh, you and I know that we've talked about that. I don't like, I really rebel against that. I don't, I frankly don't have time for posturing on that. I take one issue at a time. I decide how I feel about that issue. And that's how I feel about that issue. I don't have time for changing to depending on who, how I'm told, you know, and, yeah, and I, I feel like that's going to be a general sentiment, your generation and mine and and the future doesn't have time for messing around on that stuff. Yeah. I, if you want to argue with me, I'm probably not going to expend the mental energy to try to change your mind because I already know yeah. you're wrong and you're already close-minded. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, it, a genuine intellectual open-minded conversation with anybody. I'll have yeah. that. Exactly. You want to have an argument with me about something you think I've said. Yep. I'm probably going to come down on you pretty hard. <laughs> you know, you want to misquote me? stand by yeah you know you want to argue with me about stuff and and not respect my viewpoint yeah we're, we're probably not going to have too long of a conversation because <laughs> i don't have time for that anymore i don't want to spend exactly. my mental energy um and it's going to kind of sound shitty but you know usually we're about 40 percent of people already left by this point 
um, I don't want to talk to sheep anymore. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm not going to waste time trying to change the mind of sheep anymore. Like yep. I want to talk to, I want to talk to other lions. I'm right. like, it's now is not the time to try to wake up more sheep. Like no. it's too late for a lot of them. Like gather your lions and talk to your tribe and, and build your community. That's, that's my mindset moving forward. A hundred percent. And it is all about community. It's all about family. It's all about people. And you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired of, and, and I don't know, are you a, you're technically a older millennial or young generation X? Do you really, I'm, what do you, I would say that I'm in that in between half generation in between, right. in between what is it? Z and millennial. Right. So I grew up, X, I, think. Yeah. I grew up with the Apple too. I grew up with the internet. Like I yep. had, yep. I had an analog childhood and I grew up with computers in the digital yep. age. Like, um, you know, I grew up having to learn MS DOS and programming at basic on an Apple II or an Apple II GS, you know, playing Oregon trail. Yep. Um, uh, I remember, you know, I remember windows 3.11 before yep. worldwide web was out there. Yep. I remember having to call into AOL and, you know, we're so spoiled now with Google at our fingertips and a supercomputer with you know 4k screens that'll fit in your pocket like <laughs> 20 years ago that would just absolutely have blown my mind i mean the first i, I was thinking back to my first quote smartphone yep. it was it had a, like a 2.1 megapixel camera on it and i could right. send emails from it on you know but t9 word yep and i remember that was such a cool thing because i could um i could go to a boat and i could you know i could this is when I was in the Navy on shore duty. So I could go to the, go to a boat that I was supposed to be working on. I'm like, okay, I'm reading the work package. Well, conditions on site aren't, aren't what work package says they're supposed to be. Right. Well, I could either take some pictures and send them to the boss over email and get an answer on what to do in five or 10 minutes. Or I could just sit there and look at this, look at the job package, drive all the way back to shop. I have to talk to him drag them all the way back out to the boat. They look at it. Then we go back to the shop. We talk about what to do. Then I go back to the boat and work on it. It's right. say, it started to save so much time. So like leveraging early technologies like that was, uh, was a lot of fun, was profitable, was productive. And I have no yeah. idea where I was going with that story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we were just talking about where you grew up in technology. And I was trying to think about where you were in a generation. I feel like a bit lost generationally, but I, I because... feel like I've got a, a foot in both worlds still like that's what like i I'm, feel like like you know, I'm, I'm definitely not a boomer but right. you know i still have I, i'm still kind of in touch with you know the folks that are right now going to be in their late 40s yep. that you know that are on social media that have really resisted yep. it that you know that didn't rack up a bunch of debt by going to college and then on the other hand you've got guys that are you know in their late 30s yep yep that have always had computers and that have always that have almost always had you know at least worldwide web if not smartphones and totally. <clears throat> it's just it's two different generations it's kind of it's kind of wild being in the middle of it yeah yeah and no i just think it's i think it's i am an optimist and i'm going to continue that mindset brian and i i i, I a couple of the things I dislike about the current cattle industry is, is, is it's very close-minded. It's very traditional. It's very, this is how we do it. 
and and very close to to new things, new ideas. I mean, for goodness sakes, they ran Alan Savory out of the country on a rope, you know, and 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 he was to be only fair, wrong, that was wrong almost on 40 thing. years ago. It was 40 years ago, but if you still mention his name to people who've never heard of anything else, they've probably heard of that and they they will resonate anti and that's bad. Like that's 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 terrible. And so what I'm saying is I don't think the generations that are coming into the work that are in the workforce now and are are starting to get the wealth. That's the millennials, that's Generation X and and or Y or whatever they call it. But Z, but the yeah, one after knows. the the one after the boomers that I just am saying the blanket statement. I know how I feel. I know. How, I think I know how you feel. We don't have time to mess with all the things that are in this created cycle now. So I'm excited for where it's headed. That's, that's all that to say that I am an optimist. I'm excited for where it's headed. I think we're going to have good times in the next 30 years. I think there's going to be a huge changing of the guards and changing of the hands. Um, and I would say that the people that are pretty stuck in their old ways are going to be in trouble. Um, those who are willing to adapt and learn, there's different levels of that. If, if, you know, Warren Buffett doesn't move his ship very quick. And, and, and so that's okay. And so for people who are pretty financially invested in land that, that maybe, maybe they are running under different economics than I'm running under. I respect that. And they're late, you know, they're phase three businesses. That's okay. That ship could be righted but they do have to be willing to change if an enterprise hasn't worked for three years straight and, and down to the bootstrap person, we don't have time for having one year that's unprofitable. So our operation is going to look wildly different from, from somebody else's operation. Who's in it. There's a whole range there of people that can be successful. What is not successful is digging in your heels and saying, I'm going to do this the same way. It just, it just, it hasn't worked for 20 years. It's going to work way worse the next 20 years. <laughs> in fact, you'll be out of business. So yeah, and and the guys that don't, the guys that are are even now still saying, well, "This is how we've always done it," you know, and they're being defensive when you start asking them probing questions about, you know, well, why do you feed hay for 270 days a year in Southwest Nebraska? Right. You know, <laughs> why does that make sense for you? I think we're we're right on the edge of fundamental change in all aspects of agriculture and food production. Like we're right there. And I think when the change happens, I think it's going to happen fast. And it's an excellent point you just made about keeping your business flexible and able to respond and able to change. And that's, what's going to set the, that's what's going to set the operators apart that are ranching in 2032 from the ranchers that are ranching in 2022 absolutely yeah so, buddy this has been an absolute blast well thank you it's um, been fun yeah yeah we, we've busted the two-hour mark not that that really means a damn thing in the world but uh i know you got to get back on the road and uh sure so i don't i don't want to detain you on the side of the highway in southwest nebraska any longer than i have to i'm mean, actually well it's not I've an been, entertainment it's i've it's, been it's, watching it was key to my day <laughs> I've been watching the windows behind you, just waiting for a county sheriff or a highway patrol to roll <laughs> up on you just to check and see if you're okay. Or even somebody else, you know, with a cake feed or a bail bed on the back, just to roll up and be like, hey, man, you good? Because I, if I saw some, if somebody was out parked along the highway yep. on my ranch with a stock trailer with cattle in it, 
for two hours, you bet your ass I would have driven by and made sure they were okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would. I, that's the era we live in where most people come by and they, oh, oh, he's just on the phone. <laughs> I do that. I mean, drive up, slow roll up. If I see they got a Bluetooth on, they're holding their phone, I'll just kind of come up next to the window and wave and <laughs> cruise right on by. And that's that's usually what it is lately. So. Yep, yep. Oh, it's been fun, Brian. Well, I always get a lot out of it hearing you talk and uh it's really healthy conversation i'd talk to you anytime i hope we could help some some listener out there just want to encourage everybody to give her give her a good shot you'll you'll make her so <laughs> yep, good stuff well thanks sage and uh thank you i'll, I'll let you get back down the road down the road bud. all right take care yep you too and uh everybody have a great week take care this episode has been sponsored by c90 ocean minerals Visit C90.com to find a distributor near you or call to request a quote today. That's S-E-A-90.com. And don't forget to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Have a great week, y'all.